0: This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your only host today, Mark Oppenheimer. Everyone else who might conceivably co-host this show with me is off doing their thing, spending time with children, catching up on books, binge-watching television, or just sleeping because, you know, we work hard. I mean... There are some super famous podcasts and I'm looking at you, Radio Lab and This American Life and stuff that come out maybe 20 or 30, but definitely not 40 times a year. And we come out like 45, 46 times a year. And when you count special little mini episodes and stuff, it's it's really like once a week. We work so hard. And so August, we're taking a little bit of time in the, uh, you know, the Tish Above season to dial things back and just have a, a summer vibe. Our Gentile of the Week is Tim Winton. This is a funny story. Quinn Waller, she and I bond over Tim Winton. You will hear this in the interview. We did it together. and He's this Australian writer, huge in Australia, fairly obscure in America, who writes surf, beachy-type novels and other stuff. And getting him as a Gentile of the Week was one of the greatest things that Quinn Waller has ever done. He is so fabulous, and the conversation we had with him was so great, and you have to stick around to the end when we find out the connection in Tim Winton's mind between Jews and camels and Australia. It's it's bonkers. Our Jew of the Week is Ilana Horwitz. She teaches at Tulane, and she has a new book about the impact of religion on academic success in teenagers. So we're going to get to those interviews, but before we do, I want to talk about what used to be my least favorite thing in the world that has actually become one of my favorite things. In the world, I want you to give me 90 seconds to talk about my own personal journey in fundraising. And yeah, I'm going to ask you for money at the end of it, but I actually want to make this a little bit personal. And I want to talk about how hard it was for me to ask for money. When I was 25 and I was first getting involved in a friend's startup nonprofit and I was helping to plan a fundraiser and it was like a totally do-it-yourself backyard fundraiser. But I was 25 and I was first starting to raise money and making the ask, I tinked on my glass. I like, you know, ding, ding, ding. And asking grad students who were on stipends, $12,000 a year stipends (laughs) to, to give $10 was so hard. And yet they gave and that was so meaningful. So it's very, very hard because you want to call people to their responsibility but you also want to honor the person who's scraping the quarters out of the seams in their sofa to give you a little something. And so like, how do you message that? And I'm a professional messenger. I mean, I write and I talk and I find it so hard to message that. But I really turned a corner with this podcast because it was product that I was producing. We, We added the podcast on top of our work and I was taking no additional money. And so I felt like I was asking for money to pay the the editors and producers. I mean, that's really what the money was going for in our first couple of years was we hired a couple extra staff and it was like, hey, can we give them, can we throw them a few hundred bucks per week to make this possible? And so it really felt like I'm raising money so other people can have a livelihood and You know, I think I'll make other claims for why we raise money for unorthodox now. I mean, I think that for those people who care about Jewish education and knowledge and continuity, you know, the the outreach we do just by doing by doing the podcast, by having conversations. It turns out that we give community to people who are, are lonely Jews, lapsed Jews, engaged Jews, but who want a different kind of conversation. Orthodox Jews who want to hear secular Jews talk unaffiliated Jews who want to hear affiliated Jews talk, converts. I mean, so many hundreds of converts we've heard from over the years who who find our podcast educational uh, in sort of getting them Jewified. So I don't have to tell you. I mean, if you're listening to this, you get it. And I'm not afraid to ask you to give something. You know, I think NPR does that famous like cup of coffee thing. You know, what if you gave the amount you spent at Starbucks today? So that'd be $5 a day or something. Um, So that'd be $1,500 a year. I don't think that most of you can afford to give that or will, but could you give $180 and, and a week from now not miss it? But as ever, the person who gives $5, we presume it's it's $5 you didn't really have to give. And so we're so, so grateful. What's the prize? Okay, this prize, we're having so much fun thinking about this. For those of you who give $100 or more, you choose your favorite host and you get entered in a drawing to be the person who gets a special mystery gift box from that host, valued at about two hundred fifty dollars. The gift box might include clothing, books, foodstuffs, um, uh, stationery, pipe tobacco. We don't know; like we haven't even decided what we're putting in our mystery gift box yet. But each, but each one of us is going to curate a specific mystery box for. The winner of our particular raffle. So you'll see in the drop-down window. Anyway, I feel like I've said way too much already. I'm just like blathering on and on. I guess if I could leave you with one thought before I send you to um tablet M dot AG slash mystery box. So that's tablet mag with the period after the M slash mystery box, tablet slash mystery box, tablet M dot AG slash mystery box if I could just leave you with another thought, it's that we are now a studio. I mean, if you if you look and listen, you will see that we have shows um, like last year's Radioactive about Charles Coughlin and Dara Horn's podcast Adventures with Dead Jews, Kylie Yunell's podcast about the Omer. We have Liel's podcast about Daf Yomi. We have a sports podcast coming up. We have Hebrew School. Oh, and I'm working on a podcast that's coming out this fall. It's called Gate Crashers, the hidden history of Jews in the Ivy League. And you'll hear much more about it soon. I mean, so much we're doing doing, and we are a non-profit organization, right? So this is all tax deductible, and it's, you know, it's a way um, to give to something that means something to you, and remember, each time you donate $100, you'll be entered to win the Mystery Gift Box, curated by the host of your choice. So, tabletm.ag slash mystery box, please go there, please give something, and, you know, we're going to keep asking throughout August, but... But God, it'll be great to see the donations start rolling in uh, as soon as you hear this. slash mystery box. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, the corduroy Rav is so, so grateful too. As I said earlier, our Gentile of the Week is Tim Winton, an Australian writer and the writer around whom Quinn Waller and I first bonded. We talked to him on the phone not long ago. He's the author of Breath and many other works of fiction, nonfiction, playwriting, screenplays, etc. And Quinn and I talked to him, he was in Australia.
1: Tim Winton, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thanks for having me on.
1: We're so excited to have you here, <laughs> like beyond belief. I don't want to fangirl too much, but I want to start out by thanking you because you are actually the reason that I have my job. When they were interviewing me, there was a the brief, why do you want this job? Why do you think you'd be good at it? But the more important question was, what are you reading? And I said that I was reading Breath by Tim Winton. And Mark was interviewing me. And it turns out that Mark is also a huge fan of yours. And that just bonded us right away and let me beat out all the other applicants. So um, thank you. Thank you for my employment.
2: No, that's fine. Send me a small check now and again
0: and we'll be even. I couldn't believe it. I was interviewing all these applicants. And, you know, we would say to them, what are you reading? Quinn said, well, I'm reading this novel by this favorite Australian author of mine, Tim Winton. Have you heard of him? And, of course, I was a big fan so it was faded that she had to work for unorthodox completely faded
2: no oh, that's that's a that's a lovely story it actually blows my mind i, I don't actually believe you but it's a it's a lovely stick thank you
1: <laughs> no i can assure you and then we, we went into a big a big tangent about how we're both really into surf books despite neither of us having ever surfed in our life
2: so what about surf books oh, i'm sorry I, you're supposed to be doing the interview i know but um, what is it about surfing books?
1: The the way that you describe it in breath, it's it's almost like dancing and it's dancing that men can feel masculine about. And I really love that description of it. Hmm. And I think also it's, it's a really physical thing. And me and my tiny New York City apartment, you know, I think I just have these dreams of like going out and just, it's just me in the ocean, me against the waves. And I guess I could go to the Rockaways and surf, but That hasn't happened yet.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we all all need to nurture some feral part of us, don't we? You know, that sense of possibility and freedom and openness. You need to feel wild. And there's lots of ways of doing it, I guess. New York City's got plenty of opportunities to go wild, but yeah, we, we do it in different ways.
1: So I'd love to start out with the beginning of your career. You published your first novel, An Open Swimmer, when you were 22. I'm 23. And I cannot listen to anything that I did over six months ago because I think that it's just terrible and amateurish. So my question for you is: you know, having had such a long career and and having started publishing books at such a young age, how do you look back on your early work?
2: Oh, I, I don't, I don't look back on it. Um, but um, <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the simple answer. Yeah, it's it's weird. Um, I mean, I literally can't remember a lot of stuff. I remember experience of writing those books more than I remember the books themselves and of course you know I'm I'm like you what I wrote six months ago I'm mortified by that never changes but I do remember being 19 20 you know writing you know my first stories and I think I wrote the best part of three books as an undergraduate all of which were later published I couldn't believe I was getting away with it you know that I that I was allowed to do this you know there was so much excitement and, and pleasure from being able to just spin things out of your own mind and, you know, the pleasure of language. I, I was drunk on language, I suppose. And it, also it was, it was at a time in, in Australian culture where um, we were given licence almost to speak in our own voices for the first time. Australia had been dominated by the British imperium for so long and also we were cowed by the American empire as well. Everyone else in the world seemed grown up and we were just sort of yokels. So yeah, I, I sort of came of age at a time where there was this explosion of confidence. So that that was part of the experience for me of of just being able to write in the voice of the people that I was from and that I knew. I mean I was a child of the white working class and I was told all my life that I was from the wrong side of the wrong country in the wrong hemisphere. And, and that was just, that was like a red rag to a bull, you know? So I was just going to go for
0: it. Were your parents excited for you when you launched into this life? And did they read your stuff?
2: Yeah, they did. I mean, look, my parents had never finished school. And I was the first person in my family to finish high school and then to go to university. And so I was doing things that were just outside my parents' experience. And they were excited by that. Their lives had been constrained and curtailed by i guess class restraints and to get one over the fence and out into the the rest of the world was, yeah they were they were thrilled i think and they were they were reading the books and scratching their heads a bit and they were readers but they weren't educated readers my parents were supportive indulgent and stoked really
1: i love that many of your books center working class characters but you are now this you know highly respected author of very literary fiction. How do you keep from feeling out of touch? How do you you stay connected?
2: I was ejected from the working class and now I'm I'm a kind of a déclasse, I guess, bourgeois, you know, but I still live among the people that I grew up with. So I'm still kind of geographically connected. I'm still socially connected. Most of my friends aren't writers. I mean, my friends are either, you know, nurses or tradespeople or I don't belong to my old world. Uh, I don't belong really to the world that I'm probably most associated with by cultural observers.
0: Americans are so ignorant about anything outside of the United States. I mean, we read a certain number of British authors or Canadian authors, but not even so many. I mean, if I mention a Canadian superstar like Robertson Davies to people, they might know it, but they might not. Alice Munro, I would say, is an exception. And Margaret Atwood, they are, they are famous. But Australia, to the rest of the Anglophone world, we are so ignorant of it. Now, you're from Perth, and I would imagine that if there's an Australian literary scene, it's probably on the other side of the continent in Melbourne or Sydney. So am I right about that, that you are in, exp- I want you to explain the Australian literary scene to us, but you are yourself geographically an outsider, right?
2: Yeah, no, that's right. Most of the population of Australia is on the East Coast, all the centers of culture and politics. And substance are in Sydney and Melbourne on the east coast. You know, I'm from Western Australia, which is the western third of the continent. So yeah, I came from a, probably the most isolated city in the in the world, cut off from the rest of Australia. We didn't even feel like we belonged. So it's like a desert version of the. Deep South, we were the unwashed.
0: In the United States, the Northerners love the Southern writers. And in part, it's because someone like Faulkner was describing a world that seemed so exotic Mm. to us. Is there a way in which the people from Sydney or Melbourne, let's say, have a a sense of you as being this East Coast of Australia exotic? You know, are they these cosmopolitan people who come to your work with preconceptions or stereotypes?
2: Definitely when I was starting out, I imagine there were two things were, were going on. You know, I was a freak. It irritated me to be seen as a freak and called a wunderkind and all that stuff. It, it truly bothered me. But, you know, now, now I'm an old guy and looking back, I was a freak. I, I would be surprised and slightly bewildered by some upstart from nowhere suddenly appearing and, and writing books as if he deserved to be read. But, yeah, I think in Australia when I was younger, writers didn't come from Western Australia. This was just sort of some unknown. So it, it, there could have been an exotic element to it. But to get, to become exotic, you need to be irritating and and impossible. And I had to kind of break through that resistance in the same way that, you know, when I was publishing in the UK and publishing in the States, you know, you had to overcome that strangeness, you know, it was not a friction-free process. You had to persist in a a way. There was nothing familiar for the cosmopolitan reader within my own country or abroad,
0: I've read in other interviews and listened to you on other podcasts talking about your fundamentalist Christian upbringing, and I know that some Christians are very eager to claim you. Some Christian journalists and critics are very eager and pleased to think of you as someone who is still a Christian writer. And I'm curious how comfortably you wear that mantle. Are you a Christian? And
2: if so, what does that mean to you? I'm still a believer, but I probably inhabit so many heretical positions that I don't comfortably belong in all places. But I'm also less interested in defining myself and the world through a narrow lens. We spent so long defining ourselves against other things. I've spent most of my adult life really looking for ways in which I find commonality with people from other cultures and other traditions. And the particularities of, you know, the orthodoxies that I grew up in, they just interest me less. You know, I'm, I'm looking for love and decency and hope and confluence. The categories can look after themselves. I'm going to take the Bartleby, the Scrivener answer and um, I would prefer not to. If you're about love and you're about making the world bigger and about liberating people, I'm with you. If you're not, I'll go and play with my own ball elsewhere. (laughs) That's how how I feel. I want to talk about being a dad. Because
0: I know you're a dad. And I was reading an old interview about your novel, Ari, from 2013, in which you were talking about the character Kai. Mm. And in response to one question, you said, look, if you have to lie to kids to make them feel safe, so be it. And I love that answer because I've talked to people who say, oh, it's so important that you be radically honest with your children and don't lie to them. And I thought, that's crazy. What kind of person doesn't sometimes lie to children to protect them, particularly Mm. young children? And I'm curious if you feel that being a father changed your writing.
2: The answer is yes. Yeah. I I think that I spent four years in university, but my education came from being a parent. I was doing all these things at the same time. I think I was becoming a parent at 23. I was already a self-employed, full-time freelance writer. And I was what used to be called a house husband for a while. So there was this kind of very strange concept in the early 1980s that um you know, men would stay home and look after the babies, which was a great privilege and thrill. So I, I just learned an enormous amount from the presence of children in my, in my life. I was also an oldest sibling. So I, I, my youngest brother is 12 years younger than me. So I was a teenager with babies. My wife has is the oldest of five. We both grew up with children on our hips, if you know what I mean. In fact, I think on our first date, well, I think my little brother came along. <laughs> so, so we're yeah, you know, the presence of children is is fundamental, I guess, in in my life. I think that had I not had children, I I would have been a different writer. And had I not had them early, I would have been a different writer. And if I had not written and published early, I'd probably be different. I just think that children just rip you open. They they expose you to. The world in a way, yeah. I just, I just, I didn't get the opportunity to to, to form a cynical veneer. You're forced to fear, and you're forced to wonder, and you're forced to a sense of responsibility because of the vulnerability of children. You know, whether they're yours or other people's. You know, that was before the internet, before we all became indentured.
0: I figured that you would be one of those people who would have found a way to keep the internet in its place.
2: Do you not feel that you have for the longest time? Yes, I, I mean I didn't even have a computer, so I, did, I didn't participate. I was a Bartleby in that sense uh, as well, because I I also have a kind of a, a an activist life, and I I'm working in other media. I'm in my third year of making a natural history documentary. I, I'm not living life quite on on my own terms, which is kind of the jokes on me. You know, I was I was getting away with it in my twenties and thirties, and even in my forties, and now I'm. Yeah, I'm a failure in that sense. I basically, whenever I can, I'm I'm still just, in terms of a process, I'm writing by hand. Um,
1: like with a pencil?
2: I was For years I was on a fountain pen and uh, now it's pencil. So I'm sort of going backwards. Pencil feels better on the page. It makes a different kind of contact with the paper. Then I type it up and then I mess it up, then I type it up, then I mess it up, then I type it up and mess it up until I just give up. There's no point at which of... The books finished, is this a point at which you surrender?
0: I want you to recommend for our listeners who don't know your work if they were to go out and get a book of yours tomorrow, since they're all in print, what would it be? Um,
2: it's it is an odd question though, because then you, you feel like you feel like a parent who's, who's right, um, I know it's
0: like choosing your favorite child.
2: So, which is which is your favorite kid? And so, which is the one that you're going to pick out and you know, lick your finger and, and get his bangs right and just push in more hair forward. I know. Pick this one, you know. Which is the gateway drug? <laughs> that's the Sophie's Choice question. Um, <laughs> I, I would normally choose not to answer that question as well. but I, um, I Look, I think lots of Americans have responded to a book that I wrote called Dirt Music, and, you know, maybe that's someplace to start. It's not as big as uh, and as alien as Cloud Street. It's going to be strange because there's a different place and – different language and I mean look we all speak English but we speak different kinds of English as I discovered you know at, at 16 reading Faulkner. We don't understand that either. Yeah I mean, I'm having my mind blown you know uh, or Flannery O'Connor or I mean, I was reading Twain you know when I was a child and that was that just that unlocked stuff for me it was like a license you can speak your own language you can including the very particularity of vernacular language and vernacular existence, you know. I mean, that's a, a strange thing for me to say, but, you know, when I was growing up, when I was a baby writer, I was full of, of nationalistic um, vinegar, but all my literary heroes were from the American South, you know. <laughs> was, uh, you know, um, th- th- they were my peers because, frankly, all the rest of my peers were still 25 years away from publishing a novel. For my generation, it's taken people, you know, a while to catch up and and then I've, you know, quite rightly been overtaken and I'm happy with that. But, yeah, I, uh, God, I can't imagine if if I'd not read Twain and if I'd not read Faulkner, if I'd not read Flannery O'Connor and Carson McCullers and Eudora Welty, what would have happened to me? (laughs) I (laughs) I would have been lost. These were my people. I've only been to Mississippi once. Uh, I've only been to the South once and a lovely book bookseller took me to Tallahatchie Bridge so I could sit there and think about yeah. <laughs> Billy Joe, McAllister. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a novel in a song. Well, Billy Joe never had liquor since. Pass the biscuits,
3: please. There's five more acres in the lower 40 I got planned.
0: So Australian. Okay, a second question. Can you recommend an Australian writer other than you that people should check out?
2: Yeah, I think Richard Flanagan, who is one of my few literary friends. I think he's a few months younger than me, so he's a pup. He's a wonderful writer. He won the Booker Prize a few years ago for The Narrow Road to the Deep North, which draws on his father's experience as a prisoner of war under the Japanese in the Second World War. He's a great writer. You know, beloved in the, in the States, well-published in the States. I'd always put him first.
0: Before I let you go, I want to ask, there's a huge Jewish community in Melbourne. And in fact, a couple of Melbourne Jews have worked for Tablet, our magazine. Did you know any Jews growing up outside of Perth?
2: That's, uh, this, this is, this. yeah, look, this is amazing to me. I mean, given my upbringing and the the awe and we, in which we held, and the Jewish people, it's incredible that we never had any sense of the presence of Jewish people at all. And the Jewish population of Australia is pretty light, but it's very much centered mostly on the East Coast, particularly Melbourne. I wasn't aware of Jewish people at all. And when I was a kid, I played football and we went and played a couple of times in a suburb called Menorah, right? Didn't even (laughs) ring a bell. (laughs) Didn't Didn't even ring a bell. And look, they even have, they even have a street plan in the suburb that is in the shape of a menorah. <laughs> I don't know what I expected that they would all look like the three wise men, <laughs> the, the magi, you know, uh, and have their own camels. For God's sake, what were we thinking? So, I my, my first real immersion in Jewish life and culture was was in Paris. I lived in Paris for for a while. I lived in the in the Marais in the Jewish quarter. You had people in uniform, you know, uh, and they were and they were wearing their gear. And again, it's a form of ownership and defiance, you know. Here I am. What are you going to do about it? (laughs) So, yeah, uh, it's, it's amazing to have been immersed in a kind of reverence for the wisdom of the Jewish world, to have held people in special regard And to have just not recognized their presence.
0: (laughs) Okay. So first of all, we wish we had camels. They don't let us have camels anymore, but it'd be awesome if we had camels. And the second thing is I've never heard Jews in Orthodox garb referred to as being in uniform, but I, I love that. So I'm going to start using that. And we're going to get American Jews to start saying it. We're going to get us on camels and we're going to start talking about the Orthodox as being in uniform.
2: Yeah, look, I, I, and I and I think you know when anyone's got their gear on, I, I guess I see that in, in, in a different way as an older person. It's like, yeah, you know, this is me. And by the way, we've got plenty of camels. You know, Western Australia, we have a feral camel problem out in the in the desert. You know, do you really?
1: Um, I've never yeah. heard of that.
2: We're we're exporting them to the Saudis. Our first transport system in Australia um, after invasion and colonization was camels and Afghani's were ears. so the before there were roads there were kind of camel highways and the camels just went out in the desert and they were they, they went forth and were fruitful and multiplied and so yeah we got the camels down i tell you i was six years old when i first saw a camel it was drinking beer A bloke had a camel out on a farm and he he'd be, he'd made it an alcoholic so it was a great treat people would go over and you'd have to bring a bottle of beer a big big bottles and he ripped the top off and this thing would get it in its teeth and chug it down. He was a happy camel. Well, obviously, obviously when he was, when he was getting some, I'm from a weird country. Believe it. Believe me. Um.
0: <laughs> so if we come to visit you, uh, we can bring you some Jewish gear, some uniforms, and you can get us back on camels. And um, this has just been one of the great Gentile of the week interviews ever. Um, and uh Yeah, I mean, we'll have to expense a trip to Australia. We have ample justification now to expense a trip to Australia to to come and and see the camels and hang with you. Uh, Tim Winton, thank you for being such a marvelous Gentile of the Week.
2: Oh, thanks a lot. The pleasure's been mine.
4: We are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences, and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet, and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest.
0: Ilana Horwitz teaches the sociology of religion and education at Tulane. Her new book is God's Grades and Graduation. And she talked to us about religion's surprising impact on academic success.
4: Ilana Horwitz, welcome to Unorthodox. Thanks for having me. So tell us, how did this become a topic that was of interest to
5: you? So I was actually pursuing my Ph.D. in education and Jewish studies at Stanford. I had come to Stanford interested in understanding why kids drop out of Hebrew school and just the general sort of Hebrew school dilemma that we have. I was doing a lot of reading about religion in America, and I came across the Pew Religious Landscape Study of 2014. And the leading headline at the time was that there was a significant decline, especially amongst Christians in America. And I opened up the study, and actually what stuck out to me was not the story of religious decline. It was actually the story of how religious America still was, which I had not actually realized. Like, I had thought that America was a very secular country, kind of like Europe. And I didn't know that a good quarter of Americans— still really organized a lot of their life around religion. I've realized that in my classes at Stanford, we talked a lot about inequality and the role of race and social class and gender. But at no point did we talk about religion. And I was like, wait a minute, if religion is still such a strong organizing feature of American life, might it actually influence how kids do in school? And this question really sat with me and it really bothered me that I didn't know the answer. And I started looking around and no one actually had written a book about this. Like we didn't know much on this topic. I realized that to be a good scholar of American Jews, I actually really need to understand religion broadly in America. And to do that, I need to understand the role of Christianity in America. And so that's how the idea for this book came about.
3: And the conclusion is not surprising at all for those of us who live more observant lives, but kind of very startling when you see it on the page, which is that kids who come from religious traditions, which you term abiders, which I think is just a great, great word, have for a variety of reasons, a much higher chance of doing better in school, especially if they belong to lower socioeconomic strata. Am I getting this more or less right?
5: Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So there are different elements of academic success. And so the first thing to point out is that when we look at grades in high school, abiders, meaning kids who grow up in these conservative Christian homes, right? It's important to note that this story is specifically about Christians. Those who grow up really organizing their life around religion, these abiders, yes, they do on average get better grades, And as a result, they are better positioned to get into college and they graduate from college in higher numbers. But there are a couple of interesting caveats. One is that for kids in the middle upper class, where they end up going to college is actually really surprising. They end up undermatching in the college selection process, meaning they go to less selective schools than you know, a lot of people would expect given their great grades. Is
3: this because they want to stay closer to their families, closer to their religious communities, rather than go across the coast to a place like Columbia or Stanford or Harvard?
5: That's right. So they have a self-concept in the book. I use this idea of self-concept, which is basically like our understanding of how we want our future selves to evolve. And much of that has to do with what's valued in the communities we grow up in. The self-concept of abiders is very much rooted in family and altruism and service to God, and it is not rooted around sort of prestigious careers. And so, for them, going to college is important. They're middle upper class kids. They know that college is sort of a central feature of life. But where they go to college exactly doesn't matter because for them, it's like, well, if I want to just be, you know, um, a mom, or if I just want to have a job, staying close to home, staying close to my religious community is more important to me than going exactly far away to, you know, Columbia, Stanford, or whatnot. So it's not really even on their radar. But also, you know, you talked about the central finding being that kids who grow up religious do better. One of the things I'm trying to do in this book is actually to get people to think about what it means to do better in school. Like, just because these kids are getting better grades, they're getting better grades because they're very good rule followers. They're very conscientious, very cooperative. I do want people to think about what that says about our schools and what our schools are rewarding, right? We like to think maybe our schools are rewarding creativity and critical thinking, But I argue that's not the case, right? They're rewarding a sort of conscientious and cooperative rule-following disposition that happens to be what these religious kids really thrive in.
3: I'm probably also botching the following stat, but one of your findings was something along the lines of that if I'm a kid from a lower socioeconomic standing and do belong to a faith tradition, God, I want to get this right, my chances of doing better I'm basically as inclined to do better as the top 25% of students are. Something along these lines. Could you help us?
5: So it's helpful to think about the um, sort of socioeconomic status of the kids in the study in four groups. I uh, It's like, you have know, there are kids who are poor, the bottom 25% based on income, education levels, and occupational prestige scores. Then there's sort of the working class. Then there's the middle class. And then there's the middle upper class, right? Each of those represent a quarter of the sample. And so the kids who are actually who benefit the most, you could say, from growing up religious are kids in the working class and the middle class. And in fact, the I think what you were citing is the finding that for basically, if you're an abider in the working class, you're sort of doing as well as non-abiders in the middle upper class. It basically bumps you up a tremendous amount to the level of middle upper class kids, which says a lot. And the reason that growing up religious is particularly helpful for kids in the working class and middle class communities. And I'll say in a minute why it doesn't help the poor kids as much is because one of the main things that religion offers is social capital. It for it Basically, social capital broadly refers to sort of social ties and networks and institutions that are sort of wraparound supports around your life. And middle upper class kids have access to social capital, regardless of whether or not they're involved in religious life. They have social capital from their parents' networks, from their neighborhoods, from other organizations that they belong to. If you are growing up working class and even middle class in America today, you don't have a lot of forms of social capital, a lot of access to social capital. The church is really sort of the last free sort of form of social capital. And it basically creates these sort of guardrails in the book. I refer to them as godly guardrails around kids for whom who are likely to fall off the path to college, um, who get involved in risky behaviors, who sort of have live in communities of despair, who have so many obstacles in their life. Religious institutions provide the social capital that sort of affluent kids can access elsewhere. That is why for this sort of middle 50 percent religion is so helpful. Why is it not helpful for poor kids? because basically the obstacles for them to academic achievement, to college, are so great. Living in poverty so incredibly hard that religion can't do enough to sort of get them over the fence.
4: So this is largely a Christian story. There's a cross on the cover, but I want to talk about the Jews. There's a great subhead in here, the Curious Case of Jewish Adolescents." So not to make this all about us, but tell us what you found and what we can learn about sort of Judaism and Jewish families and Jewish upbringing.
5: The case of Jews is really interesting. And one thing that's important to note is the story that I tell about Jews in the book is about non-Orthodox Jews, because in the sample and the data that I use, almost all the kids were not Orthodox. So comparing conservative Christians to non-Orthodox kids is a bit of a different ballgame, and we should talk about that. But the story of Jewish kids is really one about families and how our parents and the social networks that we're in, in um, the Jewish institutions, how they promote a sort of self-concept to go back to this idea of sort of your sense of self and what's valued and um, in in your community, especially for girls, a self-concept that's very much oriented around careers. And what's important is that for Jews, when Jewish parents raise their kids, they're teaching their daughters as well as their sons that they can be anything they want to be. Jewish girls are growing up wanting to have really prominent careers And motherhood is important to them, but it's secondary. And this sort of egalitarian nature of Judaism is really important here because many people, you know, they think of Judaism as this like, oh, women are so oppressed. And, uh, you know, we have all these like traditional gender norms, but actually compared to other religions, Judaism outside of orthodoxy is a very liberal, egalitarian, ethno-religious group. And so there is a sort of Culture of that in the home. And so girls learn early on that they can really do anything. And that is really important to them because, as early as adolescence, these girls who are growing up in Jewish homes are already developing these ideas of, you know, I want to be the next, you know, RBG or I want to be a prominent politician. I want to be in the spotlight. Like, I want to go and have new experiences. And as a result of having that sort of aspiration, they know they need to back up into that. They need to go to graduate school probably for that. To go to graduate school, they know that they need to probably go to a high-quality selective college. To do that, they need to do well in middle and high school. And so they sort of back into this career through a lot of schooling. And as a result, they end up performing exceptionally well. Girls raised in Jewish homes compared to girls raised in non-Jewish homes of comparable socioeconomic status, that's important, go on to complete college at much higher rates. I think they're 23% more likely to earn a bachelor's degree And they go on to more selective schools. So the the takeaway here is really about the kind of messages that parents and extended family networks and the kind of stories that we are sharing with our children, especially our girls, the kind of messages that come through about gender roles really make um, a big difference in how the lives and the educational lives of these girls unfold.
4: It's not like you would say like, oh, Hebrew school for these non-Orthodox Jewish girls, especially, is what's making them more driven. Like there's a way in which Judaism functions so differently here than than sort of the examples of Christianity, where like you're part of the community, you go to church. It's like these girls could actually maybe never go to synagogue, but they're still getting a deeply Jewish lens on what their future could hold. So how do you explain that?
5: Yeah. So a lot of that has to do with the kinds of messages that they get both in their immediate families, their extended families, the sort of role modeling of other women in their families, Uh, one of the things that I find, it's not really written in this book, but there's a paper that just came out in the Leading Sociology Journal that really focuses on this example of the Jewish women, that women being raised in families where both parents are Jewish versus one parent is Jewish versus no parents are Jewish. They're sort of like, you know, if you think of like Jewish kids growing up in like the pickle brine, right? The pickle brine is just stronger in homes with two Jewish parents. And the reason that matters is because, right, you go to the bar mitzvah, like everyone in your extended family is Jewish. And so it's just like. The dosage of hearing and seeing the role modeling of other women having those kinds of professional careers and the messaging around what sort of like the kinds of careers that are valued in our community are that much stronger. There's also an emphasis on sort of an openness to new ideas. And in the paper that's actually online and it's like open access, it's not hidden behind a paywall, like most academic papers are. There are these quotes from girls who say, actually, in Hebrew school, one of the things that I really took away from Hebrew school was that I'm supposed to be a critical thinker. That Judaism is not just about taking and following the rules and taking things sort of for granted. I'm supposed to question things. I'm supposed to question the text. And that is a very different way of sort of growing up and thinking about religion than conservative Christians for whom it's like, here's what re- you know religion teaches you and you just kind of take it as it is.
4: Coming down from on high. That's fascinating.
5: Yeah, and so there is some of that remnant of like that ethos of questioning that has really seeped into the minds of, Jewish kids, that seems to make an impact on how they, their openness to new experiences, which is quite high for the girls who are Jewish, quite low for the girls who are conservative Christians. I also want to add, let me add this one point. There's long been this notion that the reason Jews have done well in America, the reason they have such strong rates of educational attainment is because they value education. And my work shows that valuing education is not that simplistic of an explanation Because when you say somebody just values education, you're also basically saying like, oh, well, the reason, you know, black people in America or Latinos haven't done well is because they just don't value education. And um, as a sociologist, that kind of explanation just doesn't sit well with me. My work shows both in the book, but also in this additional paper that there are sort of structural factors and a long history of literacy in Jewish history that contributes to why Jews have been highly educated. It has worked for them in a way that has not worked for other ethno, religious, and racial groups. And that perspective requires like, looking back at history and how literacy helped Jews become merchants and how it helped them in the ghettos and how it helped them in emancipation and how it helped them when they came to the United States. But there's a long history of stories of how education has worked for American Jews. And the fact that it has worked for them contributes to why it works for them now. Right. Because if it were the case, by the way, that Jews just simply valued education, we would not be seeing declining rates of educational attainment right now amongst Jewish boys, which we are seeing educational attainment rates amongst boys are kind of plummeting. And so if it was just like a simple story of valuing, oh, did Jewish boys just stop valuing education? I don't think it's as simple as that. So that's one of the things I want people to be thinking about in my work.
4: Ilana M. Harwitz, this work is fascinating. Honestly, it's, it's really, really interesting to read, and it's so great to talk to you and to sort of hear this all come to life. The book is God, Grades, and Graduation, Religion's Surprising Impact on Academic Success. Thank you for being a guest on Unorthodox.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Mazel tovs. My mazel tov is to the Buxton School, a boarding school in Williamstown, Massachusetts, that I had not heard of until I read an article in the Boston Globe from last month about how the Buxton School has banned smartphones, not just for students, but for faculty as well. They have created a community of 90 students and 10 or 12 faculty members, 100 people, who talk to each other without being on their phones, who are not distracted by their smartphones. I believe that flip phones are allowed and laptop computers are allowed. It's not like they're technology free. They've just decided no smartphones and it has been transformational. Go read the article about them in the Boston Globe. And meanwhile, I offer the Buxton School a hearty Mazel Tov. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, and Stephanie Butnick, and Leah Leibovitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Sar Fredman Ader, Daron Rusquet, and Sam Hacker. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and or Facebook. Donate to our fundraiser at tabletm.ag slash mysterybox. tabletm.ag slash mysterybox. You can get unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Our episode art is by Esther Wardiger. our theme music is by Golem, and our mailbox name is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Daniel Sherman at Temple Sinai in New Orleans. And we come to you from the Tablet Studios Wrapping Paper Room, where we're busy assembling our mystery gifts. Shalom, friends.